The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to follow in your Bible. I'm going to read in Genesis 14. We're continuing to study what God was doing in the life of faith in the man Abraham. We've seen him at a low point, last week at a rather higher point, and once again today he shines in a place of faith and in a relationship of strong faith to the Lord. He doesn't always shine that way, but we're going to see Abraham in a very positive light today. And I'm going to avoid reading a lot of the complicated details and names that are in the first uh, 11 verses of Genesis 14, but tell you that there's a military campaign going on of some powerful eastern kings from the areas of Iran and Iraq and even up into what we would call Turkey coming to subdue and uh, subjugate the towns around where Abraham and Lot were. And that's what's going on. Kings under the leadership of a man named Cater Laomer, who came and led these four kings. So listen to this story of conquest and then a countermeasure. I begin reading at verse 11 of Genesis 14. Hear God's word. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and their food, and they went away and carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abraham. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born of his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Cater-Lamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, 
I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anair, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is God's holy word. In our hyper-security conscious 21st century, it hardly seems possible to run your mind back and believe that on June 27th, 1976, airport security was a very lax thing worldwide. And on that date, armed terrorists from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine hijacked an Air France jetliner with 113 passengers and crew on board. They had this plane flown to Entebbe Airport in Uganda, Central Africa. Some of you who were living in the 70s can remember this. Pretty famous incident. The hijackers were given sanctuary by Uganda's rogue president, Idi Amin, and for a week they were there. They took charge of an airline terminal and defied the international community. Everybody seemed powerless to stop these folks, and everybody pondered and wondered what their next move would be. Well, some folks did more than ponder. In Tel Aviv, elite Israeli army commandos boarded several C-130 Hercules transport planes. And in a very carefully planned military strike, they landed at Entebbe under cover of dark. And within about a half an hour, the Israeli commandos had rushed the hijackers, gunned most of them down, and safely rescued 110 out of 113 people held hostage. Very few counterterrorist actions taken in modern times have matched the stunning success of what is known as the Entebbe Raid. Many remember it for that. But that raid had a wonderful historic precedent 4,000 years earlier, which we've read about today. As a man who was basically a herdsman and a man of peace, led people of his own workers and family and relations as a posse to rescue and rout an enemy, save a kinsman, and give glory to God in the whole process. Now, if we would understand what God might tell us in the 14th chapter of Genesis today, I think we have to define an important word that describes Abram here and the way that he lived in faith. It's a big word. It's a vocabulary word. If you're a young person, maybe you can write it down. It's in the sermon title. And maybe you can learn what it is. The word is magnanimous. The dictionary says it comes from two Latin words, the word magnus for great and animus for spirit. So it means to have a great spirit, to have an attitude of your mind and your heart and your choices that you make that make you stand out for generosity, for unselfishness, for bold action on behalf of others. That's why I exhorted this morning our folks going on the missions trip and said, might you discover what it means to have a magnanimous spirit? 
because that's what it takes to serve other people in uncomfortable cultural situations. It means to have a big-hearted generosity, to be able to deal in crisis without just saying, what's good for me right here, but rather to do bold things that are good for others. Well, the man of God, Abram, certainly exhibited that before us. And wouldn't you say, by the way, that to be magnanimous also relates to something else having to do with this day? What is a mother almost every day of the week and every month of the year, if not magnanimous, towards her family? Giving up self-interest, doing things that are uncomfortable when she's tired, when she'd rather take care of herself living in unselfish love towards others. That, too, is magnanimity. We want to see here today how, perhaps, in a society that also is beset by the kinds of warfare and hostility and uncertainties that Abram and Lot faced, we, too, can live in a magnanimous way. Well, it's not our tendency, is it? Our tendency is to protect ourselves, to act for my interest to protect my safety and my assets, to let the goals of prosperity be the main ruling goals. And yet I believe with all my heart that we can discover in our relation to the living God by faith in Jesus Christ a calm poise and an anchorage that allows us, too, to make decisions and sacrifices for other people because it centers its trust above the frenzy of merely looking for material gain and every man for himself individualism. Now, Genesis 14, 1 through 16, by the way, marks the first historical incident of warfare recorded in the Bible. That's rather interesting. I'm not saying to you that no one ever fought each other before this time, but it's the first time that that warfare is actually detailed with the names of places and kings that were involved exercising power to subdue other people and get other people to do your will some 2,000 years before Christ. If you think strife in the Middle East began recently, you haven't been reading the Bible lately. What I want you to find as a first point this morning is this. Magnanimous faith can take risks for other people once it has taken God at His Word. Magnanimous Faith can take risks for other people when it has taken God at His Word. The story here, just to condense a lot of historical detail, you certainly are welcome to read those first ten verses that I didn't read, and you'll run into a few names that you can't pronounce and places that you don't know anything about, but we're given all this historical detail to make us understand a situation. There were four kings or rulers from eastern lands, primarily Iran, Iraq, and areas north of there. They represented people like the Chaldeans and the Hittites, mighty people, who had decided to combine their interests as superpowers and subdue other people and control trade routes and and towns that might enrich them. And apparently there was some amount of rebelliousness going on, and they said, it's time to flex our muscle. We need to go in there and let these people know who's boss. So these four kings, led by an, an early-day kind of Attila the Hun named Cater Lammer, rode in with cavalry, with 
armed troops. They must have been like all of the, that fleet of British ships that arrived in the early days of the American Revolution, bristling with redcoats, with professional muskets and everything. And the settlers watched them come and thought, oh my goodness, what have we gotten into? Well, here they came. And they rode a circular route. You can trace it on a map. It was kind of a round route that, that subdued key towns. And then they ended up in five small cities at the south end of the Dead Sea, just south of where Abram was stationed in the hills of Canaan, and exactly where Lot was living. By the way, a footnote has to be made because a short time ago we noted Abram and Lot dividing up. Remember that? And Lot said, hey, I'm going in the green valley where the money is. Well, that's where he is. Now, in the midst of five towns, it said he pitched his tent near Sodom. I wonder if you noticed the little phrase that I read that said, now he's living in Sodom. He's totally assimilated to this society that, where he thought the opportunity was. And, and now he's there watching in horror as the cavalry and the troops of Cater Lammer come in and cut down the defenders of these towns and literally capture him and take he and his wife and daughters and march them northward, probably headed for Damascus where there were worldwide slave markets at that time. Lot, by living next to the pigsty, one author says, already smelled like a pig on his outside, even if he wasn't one yet on his inside. And he was certainly learning a hard lesson about the choices he had made. I'm sure many of you here know the Mel Gibson movie called Braveheart. It's on TV all the time. It's an exciting drama of the 14th century, a long time ago, when folks in Scotland were divided up into little clans and little tribes who mostly fought one another over incidental things and boundaries. When along came a real person, William Wallace. Now, he wasn't exactly in real life what he was in that movie. You need to study the fact that he was quite different, actually. Mel Gibson's allowed some historical or fictional license there. But nevertheless, it does portray the way in which William Wallace rallied the Scottish tribes and said, look, we've got to put our self-interest and our little squabbles aside for a bigger purpose. Look at this king of England. Look at how he's squashing us. Let us unite against him. Well, I'm saying to you that Abram is like the brave heart of Genesis, the great heart. The great heart who looked at these people sweeping in before whom everybody was absolutely afraid. Nobody would, would or could raise their hand. And here he was, a nomad, living in the hill country with his large flocks. Yes, he was almost the equal of a small town, but he lived away from the population centers, and I would guess Cater Lehmer didn't even know Abram was there and certainly didn't expect any military pursuit from him. And so when the report comes by someone who escapes and says, Abram, look what happened. They've got your nephew. You know, we wonder if there was something that passed through Abram's mind that would have passed through my mind. I don't know about you. What would that have been? He made his stupid choice. Now let him accept the consequences. Am I my nephew's keeper? I don't know if he would have said good riddance to Lot or not, but he certainly, you would think, would have said, well, who am I? 
This was a professional military force, well-armed, well-trained, led by generals. Who am I to do anything about this? But that's not what we read, is it? In fact, we don't read any debate or any thought or any discussion. We just read that Abram called in, must have gotten just about every herdsman. Imagine the size of his holdings, his flocks, that there were 318 employees and kinsmen that he now controlled, who he could call in and arm and say, boys, we're going to get them. And he also got his three allies who are named there. And we don't know whether they supplied more men or not. It's uncertain whether there were additional troops. That's debated by the commentators. Doesn't really matter. Off they went, marching north after an enemy who had no idea there was, there was a pursuit on their tail. And then reaching the farthest extent of the land of Canaan, if you know Israel at all. So a few of you have probably been to Dan, beautiful area, up in the north of Israel, hill area, just below Syria. There they caught up. And like Gideon, who later fought, they divided their force. They did it by night. There probably were no lookouts. They descended, and they routed this professional force, sending them fleeing. They chased them almost all the way to Damascus. It's an amazing scene. And then they marched southward with every captive and all the captured goods in Abram's possession. What a stunning victory. How do we account for a man of peace doing something like this unless it was the power of his God who gave his assent to this man saying, Lord, where should I turn? I'm not a man now who who goes and does it on my own wits anymore. I did that in Egypt and I fell flat on my face. What do you want me to do, Lord? I know the text doesn't say this, but I feel absolutely certain Abram prayed and asked the direction of the Lord. And the Lord urged him and said, arm your men and go, I'm with you. His faith was active in obedience to God. You know, once our faith stands secure and knows to whom we belong, that we belong to the greatest God, the one who in this passage is repeatedly called God Most High, that we can do amazing things, bold things, unexpected things. We can take risks to get involved in others' lives, and maybe even significantly, not necessarily with weapons in hand, but we can help rescue the lives of other people in this dying society. Magnanimous faith can take risks for others when it takes God at his word first. Now, secondly, I want you to see the two different people who came out to meet Abram. One of them, the king of Sodom, is mentioned first. His name was Bera, given elsewhere. But I'm going to mention the second one in the first place here. And this interesting meeting took place near the little town called Salem. Notice that in verse 18. You might say, I think I've seen that word before. It means peace, of course. Shalom, the Hebrew word today. Maybe it looks familiar another way because it's the second half, of course, of the name, Jerusalem. And guess what? Salem is Jerusalem. This little insignificant place later became Jerusalem. And there was a man who was the king. And you might say, did a little town have a king? Well, they did. That's the way things, you know, they didn't have a township manager or a mayor. Even if even over three or four hundred people in a village, there might have been a king. And Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of this little town. 
But he was more than just a, a king. We want to see how he shows us something wonderful. How magnanimous faith can lay at God's feet a sacrificial token of every success that he makes possible for us. You see, Melchizedek was a rare thing, both a king and a priest, and not a priest of some ancient mystery religion, not a priest of Baal, or not a priest of Moloch who wanted children sacrificed to him, or any of those gory and uh, terrible false idols that were worshipped. He was a priest of the Most High God. There were such people, maybe not very many of them. I don't know that there were any besides Melchizedek. But here he was, worshiping the same God as Abram worshiped. He comes out to greet him. He brings him gifts, bread and wine. There are sometimes people want to interpret that as some kind of a sacrament. We don't think it really needs to be anything other than a gift to say, hey, your men are weary from battle. Be refreshed. Eat and rejoice and let me bless you. Blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands, this man says. And Abram, imagine Abram's response, rising up and meeting this kindred spirit. This man who also worshiped the God who was guiding in his life, who was recognizing that the Lord himself had a role in this victory, and Abram had a willing, delighted, voluntary response, acting according to something which was probably a practice already ingrained in the culture. It says he got up and gave him a tenth of everything, 10%. Now, this is the first mention, many of you know, in the whole Bible of what we call the tithe, a 10% worship gift. It was something that was probably established already in different practices of worship, although this is the first mention of it. Here were two prominent men who stood together, pointing together to the heavens and saying, God Most High has done a great thing. Let us rejoice in him. Let me bring a gift in worship and acknowledgement and praise and thanksgiving to God Most High. Now, there are people that are quite sure that any time the tithe comes up, the pastor planted it there because the finances must not be doing well. Not true. This is here because it's God's Word, and it's where God's Word teaches it to us. There are those who say, oh, I don't want to talk about that Old Testament law stuff, you know, requiring people to bring a 10% gift. That's all legalism. Sorry, but there isn't an ounce of legalism in this text. This is centuries before the law of Moses, by the way, when the tithe did become established as a a legal act of worship later on. It's not a legal act here. It's a spontaneous act of grace. As Abram rises up and says, look at at the plunder that God has put in my hands, certainly to give a tithe to you, Melchizedek, in the name of this God, is a delight for me to do, an act of grace. What do we take from something like this to be meaningful to us? If not to say that in our lives, what are the successes that God makes possible? I'm not sure any of you have been leading raiding parties lately and going out and, you know, capturing camels and slaves and all that sort of thing. But has God allowed you to have a paycheck? That's a success. Has God allowed you to have investments? 
that have any increase? Well, you say not much these days, especially last week. Yes, sir, I know what the stock market did last week. It cost me money, that's for sure. But God has allowed me to have increase, to have a salary, to have a roof over my head, to have groceries in the pantry, to have success. And the worship principle that comes forward through history is, why would we not rise up in delight to the God of grace who gives us everything and be glad to say, Lord, how pleased I am to deliberately acknowledge you in this sacrificial way by laying at your feet a part of what you've made possible for me. In Proverbs 3, 9, Solomon exhorted the people of God to honor the Lord with your substance. What a substance? Substantial things, okay? Not, not wispy, immaterial things. Substance. Honor him with hard cash, if you will. And with the first fruits of your increase, the first slice off the loaf that he makes possible. You know, I'm absolutely convinced from personal experience and church experience over many years now that giving a tithe to the Lord is an essential part of Christian discipleship. You can argue with it. You can say, do I give it before tax or after tax and all that nonsense? It's just as essential for a disciple of Christ as a high school diploma is essential to being an educated person in today's society. It's not the be-all and end-all of worship, but it's a basic cornerstone. It's a fundamental step. And if you're disobedient in that, the rest of your worship life has kind of a hollow ring to it. In 2 Samuel 24, David said once, I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. You know, I can come and say, oh, God, you are great, 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 great. You are so great. It's all words. What does it cost you to worship God? Well, by contrast, we see another man in this passage, Melchizedek, aroused the giving of the tithe, a magnanimous offering. But look at the other man who's here, the king of Sodom. He comes skulking out in the same place here, apparently. Where was he in this battle? Maybe hiding somewhere. I don't know. He escaped being taken away as a slave. He comes out, or actually, it's not out of the question that he was even among the captives who were brought back, but whatever, he appears here. And he seems to forget the principle that to the victor go the spoils. All right, Abram, with his courage and his daring, had gone and won all these things. Did these things belong to the king of Sodom? Not at all. Not by ancient practice or even by much modern practice. And yet he comes swaggering out and says, no thanks to Abram or anything else, just a deal. Abram, good job. You get to keep the money. I'll take the people. And you want to say, on what basis are you making this deal? Who are you to bargain? What authority do you have? And you notice Abram's response to this man. He responds absolutely as a man who is captive to his vow of faith to the Most High God. And he says, look, my friend, I will not be enriched by you, not a dime. I will not even be put under obligation to you so that by making this deal, 
later on it can be said, well, you know, Abram really owes the king of Sodom a, a lot because he allowed him to have. I don't even want to be part of that. Implicitly, you would think he's saying, I don't want to be tainted by your repugnant reputation for immorality. I don't want a single gold sovereign that came out of that stinking city of yours. And guess what? By refusing all that, where did all the, all the stuff go? Do you, do you realize that? It went to the king of Sodom. The man got twice what he asked for because Abram wanted nothing to do with being enriched by worldly deals. What magnanimity. He said, I'm in this for the honor of God, and I won't be part of shady compromises with godless people or backroom tactics. I think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians six twelve. There Paul was saying how as an apostle he had to be careful in his decisions. He said, you know, it's, it's legitimate for me to get paid for certain work I do here or there or to ask for this or for you to support me. He said, all things are lawful to me, but I have to be careful in the choices I make. Just because something's lawful doesn't mean I'm going to take it. I won't be enslaved by anything. Magnanimous faith is the kind that is lavish in honoring God with real hard cash gifts when he gives us his success. And magnanimous faith is careful in the way it stands apart from the cheap deals that the world is going to offer us to entangle us. Now, thirdly, I have another quick point to peel back another layer of Genesis 14. And it is this, to say that today's Christ-centered faith is of its essence magnanimous because it looks to him who spent everything for us. Well, how do I get Christ into Genesis?